Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Don't miss the upcoming interviews and subscribe to the show in your podcast player now. Before we start, I want to thank my sponsors. Without their support, this podcast would simply not be possible. And they have great products and services too. So please listen to their messages and afterwards enjoy. I approached Shift Crypto Security because I feel like we care about the same things. My absolute belief is in independence. This is a value that drives all of Shift's products too. We both believe that everybody should be the holder of their own keys. And a well-built hardware wallet is the safest way to hold your coins. So when Shift announced the Bitbox O2, we made it happen. The Bitbox O2 is Swiss-made, secure and easy to use. It has invisible touch sensors and USB-C. And it also comes as a Bitcoin-only edition. That's something I believe in too. So I encourage you to check it out at shiftcrypto.ch. That's shift, C-R-I-P-T-O dot C-H. And you can get free shipping with the code ANITA. The Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto Security. Paying with cryptocurrencies in everyday life and that with any wallet? Salamantex makes it possible now. Cheap, fast and easy at the checkout or online. All Salamantex merchants and further information about the Salamantex digital payment system can be found at www.salamantex.com forward slash customers. That's www.salamantex.com forward slash customers. So hello and welcome to the Bitcoin and Co podcast. Today I have another special guest for you. It's Janine Römer. Hello Janine, thanks for your time. Hello Anita, thanks for inviting me. I've known you from the web <laughs> or from Twitter for like a year now or something and I've seen your you define yourself on Twitter as a cypherpunk and also a minimalist, decentralist, and you're doing a YouTube live stream each week, I think. It's called Block Digest. Yeah. So on Block Digest, we used to do only live streams on YouTube, and now we actually record in the Bitcoin Mumble and release it later as a live stream. But yeah. What is we, the Bitcoin Mumble? <laughs> the Bitcoin, well, the Bitcoin Mumble was, uh, it was an attempt by some people to migrate the Dragon's Den, the so-called Dragon's Den, off of Slack and... Um, all of those other places where they were meeting the infamous Dragon's Den. Um, it hasn't worked, but we do have a substantial amount of people in there. So it uses Mumble, which is not a Bitcoin application. It's just a, um, I think Let's Talk Bitcoin also uses it to record their podcast. Um, it's just a way to talk to each other and write messages. So. Ah, okay. I didn't know that before. Yeah. Okay. It's uh -huh. like TeamSpeak. Okay. Similar. Okay. Uh -huh. And, um, But what's your story? I mean, what did you do before you entered the Bitcoin space in a broader spectrum? And um, what is so interesting for you about Bitcoin? Uh, so before I entered Bitcoin, which was around mid to late 2014, um, I mostly, I, I did transcription. I mean, that was my main job. I also did work for a organization that uses animals, specifically horses, especially to, um, help, uh, people with mental and physical disabilities. Um, because there, it's, it's a lot easier to get them to engage with you if you have them doing some kind of activity, especially with animals, because, um, people in general tend to connect with animals very well. And so it, opens up opportunities for um, helping them with any issues they have, especially communication. So I did that. Uh, I also did some uh, nonprofit educational work unrelated to technology and stuff, just um, school-related tutoring. 
Um, and I've been wanting to be, well, for a long time, I actually wanted to be a park ranger, <laughs> um, but I haven't, I, I haven't pursued that yet. I don't know if I ever will. Um, but I've wanted to be a journalist for quite a while because I have, I, I've always been particularly interested and, um, I've been told I'm pretty good at writing. And so that was my skill. So I did a lot of writing related tasks and, I wanted to do more than just write what other people were saying or which is what transcription is. And so I wanted to go into journalism and I was really inspired, um, since around 2012, 2013 by especially WikiLeaks and what was going on there. Um, so now I, I've still, I'm still an independent journalist. I've actually never worked for any media outlet, uh, yet. I don't know if I ever will. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still really interested now in Bitcoin because I, at some point when I was deciding that I wanted to be a journalist, I realized, um, when I finally kind of, I actually discovered Bitcoin in 2012, but I didn't really get the significance. Um, and then when I got into it in 2014, that was because I realized that in order for, journalism to really be censorship resistant or any kind of activity that is likely to be targeted, um, especially by the state, you need to have some kind of censorship resistant money. Um, so I think that was going to be, that was what I decided would be the crux of my talk at the upcoming lightning conference, um, that censorship resistant journalism needs censorship resistant money. Mm -hmm. So like you said, you, you heard from Bitcoin in 2012 and then When did you get get deeper into it? I mean, I think you also have a technical knowledge. Yeah, I so actually I have it with me. Um, <laughs> I I got into I first heard about Bitcoin through this book. Um, so that would have been it was published in 2012. Um, I might have read it in 2013. I don't remember, but I remember reading about it in this book, and I remember it, but it didn't. I didn't realize the importance of it at the time. Um, but then following all of the related activities, um, around, so the book is cypherpunks. Um, and so when I was following all of the news around that, then I eventually did realize the significance of it when I had enough time to actually research it fully, mm -hmm. but I don't actually have a technical background. I'm not a developer. Um, all of it is purely my own research and interest. Yeah. Okay. So it's the book called cypherpunks. What is it? Say? Uh, freedom? Yeah, freedom and the future of the internet. Freedom and the future of the internet. Okay, I will put that on the show notes too, of course. And I guess I will read it. Um, so that would be an, uh, an next question of me because I was uh, seeing that you refer to yourself as a cypherpunk. And I was, I wanted to ask you what came before Bitcoin or the cypherpunk in you. So actually it was at the same time in a way. Um, well, if the foundational idea of being a cypherpunk is that number one, you, you believe or you want to believe in the power of cryptography to change the world in terms of using it to communicate securely and to engage in ways with others that, you know, you might not even have to meet them at all or just reduce the amount of violence that you may be subjected to. That's one of the topics that's discussed in the book. Um, I don't, I mean, I, that aspect of being a cypherpunk, um, I really, I only got into that in maybe seven years ago. Um, I didn't use that word to describe myself before because I was actually almost a technophobe before that. Um, because I was aware of the different ways that, um, our devices and internet infrastructure could be subverted to, um, compromise you in different ways. And so I hadn't at that point learned enough about how to combat that to do anything. So I just tried to stay away from technology as much as possible. And, um, then I gradually figured out ways that I could still engage with this technology and not be afraid of that and actually feel more empowered by mm -hmm. using it. Mm -hmm. Because I think cryptography, I mean, Andreas Antonopoulos said that once is basically self-defense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a defensive technology. Yeah. I think, I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, for me, Bitcoin came first and then I realized, okay, one of the foundations is the cypherpunk manifesto, like, which says, 
um, everybody should use as less or as little data as possible from the people. And now what we have now is exactly the opposite. Like looking at Facebook or Google, they like extort all of our data. Mm. Yeah. So there, I mean, if, if we want a, and well-cited definition. Um, actually, the beginning of the books defines cypherpunks as people who advocate for the use of cryptography and similar methods as ways to achieve so societal and political change. Um, and it's been around since the 1990s. Um, and also, if anyone is curious, um, it's actually it's a slight twist on cyberpunk, which is much, much older. Um, and that just that's like punk culture on the internet, essentially. And then cypherpunk is more focused on like cryptography and um, that, okay. those aspects. It's uh, it's a bit more political than just cyberpunk. Uh huh. But on the other hand, we also have the crypto anarchists. Mm -hmm. What are they? Um, I mean, I, I it's I think some people would debate whether y you can be a cypherpunk and not a crypto anarchist. I think for the most part, the lot of, a lot of the people who identify as cypherpunks are both. Um, but I've I've met plenty of cypherpunk people that don't consider themselves to be anarchists, at least in the traditional definition. So, um, I I would assume that the distinction with crypto anarchists is just people who they're they're specifically identifying the the political ideology or the political structure that they're aiming for i guess which cypherpunks doesn't really do that it just says that you will use it for societal and political change but we don't that doesn't define what change you're aiming for mm -hmm. so and i've realized that um I've been to the Prague Hackers Congress and that the crypto anarchists, sometimes they hide their faces and everything. So they're wearing masks. Why? Um, I mean, for me, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons why I, I personally don't like having my photograph taken. Um, I would say that the main reason is just when I thought about it early on, whether I wanted to have a public face on the internet, like when I was a kid, would I, I didn't even use my name or any, like any kind of static identity back then. Um, but I basically just thought that I wanted to have the freedom to go wherever I wanted and not have people recognize me instantly. If that was ever a possibility where people would recognize me instantly. And it's actually now becoming the case that I'm getting recognized for my voice, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a little bit interesting because it, I still, I can walk around freely. And as long as I don't speak, no one knows it's me. But if I talk for five, 10 minutes, then people, people who are in the know will figure out who I am. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, I, I want the freedom to move around and not, I, I just, I like pe having people not recognize me if they haven't met me yet. Yeah. But, and on the other hand, I mean, we are surveillance everywhere. I mean, yeah. everywhere we go in every underground everywhere and it's for the sake of security. I'm not sure actually, um, if it really helps, um, or if it's needed that we all are surveillance. Yeah, I mean, I haven't taken, I don't think I've taken enough steps to prevent that because, I mean, I don't, I don't do much, um, in terms of trying to cover up my appearance when I'm walking around areas where there are surveillance cameras, which you could obviously do, uh, if you follow the advice of someone like Jameson Lopp. But I think <laughs> even Jameson Lopp doesn't walk around all the time with masks on. No, I'm so. sure he doesn't. But on the other hand, it's not very practical. And in Austria, for instance, it's forbidden yeah, by law. But, so, yeah. yeah. And now in Hong Kong, now yeah. uh, people are getting, um, forced to take their masks off by, ironically, police who are wearing masks yeah 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 <laughs> so it's all about power basically like i by not sharing my face online and I'll, i mean that's another thing like with uh one of the examples of why it can be dangerous is we're getting the this new thing called uh revenge porn um and also what is it called deep fakes uh where you take someone else's face and you put it onto someone else's body and it's becoming very good um if you have enough photos of someone to do that so um yeah i always i also always get laughs because the profile picture that i use on social media is not even me um and people mm -hmm. just find it funny that i'm using a photo that is from the back because even from the back you can actually tell a lot about the characteristics of a person but obviously the face is the most identifying part 
So mm-hmm. the other day, I found a tweet or somebody wrote it somewhere. I'm not sure where it was, but this person was saying basically, don't use coin joins, don't use Monero, uh, because if you're not a criminal, you don't have to use it in that way. Uh, and on the other hand, the more people who use it, the better it is for everybody, because um, it's about freedom of transaction, freedom of speech and such. How would you explain that to somebody? Why is it important that coins are mixed or that we don't put everything online or that we give all the data to Facebook? Um, Well, to address the point of people who use this technology are criminals, um, I think it was uh, Pamela Morgan who said before that the definition of a criminal is highly jurisdictionally like uh, specific. Uh, for example, to go back to the Hong Kong example, I'm sure the government in Hong Kong considers a lot of the protesters in their city to be criminals. Um, obviously, people in the United States and Europe in general wouldn't agree with that description. Um, so when we say that criminals shouldn't use these technologies um, or we shouldn't use them because criminals do, um, I think you're, you're basically saying we should be beholden to the, uh, you know, legal definitions of other countries that may shift and change over time. We don't know whether any one of us at any point is going to be described as a criminal for something that we consider completely okay today. And so also the, the, the reason that a lot of people want to use these technologies is because they view a lot of the people in power as being criminals themselves who want to abuse their power to, um, destroy people's privacy. And then there's the similar argument where, especially around the Snowden leaks, where People said that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to lose. And I would say that if you have nothing to lose, your life... I wouldn't use the word boring because there can be very interesting people who have very bad opinions and don't care about their privacy. Um, so I would say that someone who believes that leaves a... They they lead a very unchallenged life. <laughs> like they've, they've basically never been in a situation where anyone or anything has been a threat to them that they might need to communicate in a secure way with someone else. So that's basically a statement of privilege. Yeah. Or not seeing that they maybe are also discriminated against something, but they don't just don't see it. Yeah. That happens uh, very often. Yeah. That too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before you said something about fake news and deep fakes and stuff, um, So in the last 20 years, the quality of journalism, I think we can say, has declined because all the outlets, news outlets, are up for the next click or to have more clicks and uh, to earn more money because the foundation, like the money to fund journalism has gone because the ads are all online and not in the paper anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say, what's the problem with journalism today and how could we solve it it's a big, it's a big question <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that that's one of the things i say at the beginning of the talk i'm going to or that i'm going to say at the beginning of my talk um that journalism has a lot of problems and there is no single single solution that will fix all of them at once um, and even though my talk is about how lightning can help journalism, I, I, I say early on, like, I don't actually believe that blockchain or lightning or whatever is going to be the ultimate solution to all of this. But it's certainly a useful tool that we should explore because it offers interesting opportunities. Um, specifically, um, uh, just because, um, yeah, I don't know if the quality of journalism as a whole has necessarily declined. I do think the quality of the the dominant players has probably declined because they like you said they're they're funded through this ad surveillance model and so that basically makes them beholden to advertisers and whether their readers will go engage with the advertisers not whether the readers will engage with their writing which like if you think about it that way it just seems bizarre like you're you're basically having someone pay you to not read your, your article and to go and click on ads. And so that's just fundamentally me- messed up. And the more, I mean, I don't know if it's recent because I think a lot of 
journalistic organizations and independent journalists were sponsored by wealthy individuals in the past. But we definitely now have this benevolent billionaire model where you have what very capital rich um, companies or specifically capital rich people who um, they profess to have this um, desire to basically, they don't use the word donate, but they want to give money towards an effort that they believe helps the public have a better understanding of the world through these journalists. Um, that's what they claim to do. I don't know if all of them actually, that's their incentive to do it. And I think a lot of them have failed in that way. Um, but yeah, that, I think that even if you have a person who does that with the best intentions, there's always the risk for the organization that when you, when you have a big player like that, who is funding your work, you're less likely to see the cracks in your business model or your organization or your processes. Um, if the person funding you can basically absorb your failure, failure with no, no effect on themselves. Like if, uh, if, if Jeff Bezos, if the Washington post goes down and st stops making money, Jeff Bezos is not like his business is not dead. He has, you know, tons of money himself. He runs lots of businesses that have money. It's not a hit to him, but obviously it's a hit to the people working at the organization. Um, so I think that that dependence is dangerous in a lot of ways. And so I think with something like lightning, um, especially since it would allow us to do micropayments that are below the threshold that, you know, credit card companies offer. Cause we have this, we have a, the option now that we can pay per article in some, in some journalist organizations. Um, they're also doing subscription based like monthly, yearly. But the, the problem with paying per article is that the minimum threshold is, I would probably say too high for most people. Um, so with lightning, you can go as you can go lower than cents if you want to, if you have a large enough audience already, then that makes economic sense for you to do if it means actually getting the article paid for. So that's in terms of funding, that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to. So that payments over lightning can fund independent journalism and also like single people like you, for instance, as a journalist, so that people can directly pay you without any intermediaries. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, because I don't think, I think it definitely offers more opportunities for journalists to be independent. Um, large organizations can use it too. There's nothing wrong with that. But the reason that journalists, I mean, journalists tend to coalesce into organizations for two reasons. One of them is funding. They want to get together and they also want to work on teams. But the other one is because, uh, which I also talk about, is the risk of censorship when you have a a media organization that's a lot harder to censor than one journalist who, you know, has a WordPress blog or something like that. So that doesn't solve really the legal side of why journalists may not want to be independent, but I think it definitely helps with the funding aspect in that they don't have to trust intermediaries um, on fewer fees and things like that. And they can self-host um, the financial aspect of their business. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some, like say, blockchain projects out there that want to improve journalism with blockchain on the basis of a blockchain, yeah, whatever. Um, I think you researched on that too, like Steam, for instance. What is the thing there? Is there a problem with it or is it a good thing? Yeah, so Steam, Steam is one of the... One, I mean, there's been a lot of storage coins, um, they call themselves storage coins that weren't necessarily catering to blogging or journalism or anything like that. But Steemit, I think, is the earliest example where they were specifically focusing on building a platform for blogging and social media that was storing the content on a blockchain. And pretty much from the big, I've never used Steemit and pretty much from the beginning, I knew even before I, I knew very little about how blockchains work and what actually makes them sustainable. I didn't think that that was going to work um, just because of the incentives involved. And so they've been around since 2016 or so. And I believe it was a couple of months ago, they 
um, the, the CEO of the Steemit Inc. company, um, made a statement saying that he, they're struggling with scaling and they need storage space. They're going to use Amazon Web Services, which is pretty much what they all use. They use some Amazon Web Service, uh, thing, which is, But that's not censorship resistant. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Yeah, none of these things are censorship resistant. It's basically just a bunch of like on the on the grand scheme of things, they're relatively technically literate people. But if any of these systems were subject to any kind of targeting in any serious way, I don't think that they would survive a moment. And the the other two projects that I've looked at um, is well, Brave didn't do anything specifically for journalism. So I'll mention uh, Civil. Civil is the, they basically copied what Steema did without giving them credit. Um, and they, instead of going through the huge engineering task of building their own blockchain, they just decided to use Ethereum, which does not solve the problem. And uh, there, there was this really funny response that I got from a immediate partner of civil um, in a conversation about whether th their system would work. And she said, Oh, I'm not paying for storage. I'm paying for decentralized archiving. <laughs> and I just, I just did like face palm because, <laughs> because those are the same thing. <laughs> like you can't have archiving without storage. It, yeah, it just didn't make sense to me. And so this is, but that's, that's the mindset of a lot of these people. They, they think just put it on the blockchain and your problem is solved, but they don't understand why the blockchain or how a blockchain remains censorship resistant. And one of those things is that you have to have a sufficient number of nodes in the network, a sufficient number of people who are you know, being witnesses to what is going on and verifying things. And if you make it difficult to run a node, which is what is happening right now in Ethereum, over 50% of nodes in Ethereum, I think, are relying on Infura, which is owned by Consensus, which, by the way, also owns Civil, uh, or it's a spoke, uh, Civil is a spoke of Consensus. And Consensus basically runs all of Civil's infrastructure, which means that Civil uh, could basically be shut down by Consensus in no seconds flat because they run all of the nodes. And so if you don't have sufficient, you know, decentralization of the nodes, uh, sufficient nodes, then you don't have censorship resistance because if you're storing all of your data, all of your nodes in some data center in New York City, that's, that's mm -hmm. not going to help anyone. I mean, it'll help someone who's maybe, uh, well, maybe not lately in China, because apparently a lot of American companies are kind of uh, bending over backwards to accommodate them. But um, I mean, there there's some cases where if if you're taking advantage of some legal protection of the United States and you're in a country that doesn't have any, that might work for you. But on the global scale um, in the United States, um, it doesn't offer you much protection if you actually come up against a threat. And also, I think that you really store the stuff on the blockchain. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. but that, then there's huge amounts of data there. Yeah. And, um, it's actually kind of confusing. Um, well, they're, they're confused and I'm confused as a result, <laughs> but, um, the same media partner who said, you know, not storage, decentralized archiving. Um, there was also some confusion about whether they were storing metadata, which I assume to mean hashes. That's usually what they mean. Um, I didn't know if they were storing the hashes of the articles or the entire articles. And, um, I later found out they were storing the entire articles. And I think even the formatting, like the formatting marks and everything, oh. which is like huge, <laughs> it's hugely inefficient. And, um, so of course, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people recognized all these red flags like I did, but there wasn't enough people who were interested in supporting this project and their token sale failed because, Uh, very few people bought into it, like less than a thousand, I think. And consensus actually bought 80% of them, which means that they could 51% attack all the governance decisions. Okay. So, but, but what would be a model that could work? I mean, which elements does it need? So I think, uh, the, the reason I like projects like open timestamps is because they take a very minimalist approach towards what is being stored in the blockchain. And that basically comes down to hashes or just small amounts of data. And Bitcoin, obviously the, the way it was designed or fixed 
uh, in the design to not allow people to just dump large amounts of data on it is a good thing because then you don't have this risk that Ethereum has where a project comes along and like, we're just going to store all of our word salad on your, mm-hmm. your nice blockchain and you can't do anything about it because the rules allow for that. And so Bitcoin, the rules are obviously more limited. And so that, that forces you to take a more minimalist approach by default. And so I don't think that it's wrong to store any kind of extra messages or hashes or whatever in the Bitcoin blockchain, but we just have to be aware of the consequences of using it as a content storage mechanism, and we shouldn't be abusing that system. Um, So that's why I like open timestamps, because it takes... Uh, I just wish all of these blockchain journalism projects would just use open timestamps because it would solve like 90% of the issues that they think they're solving. Maybe you can answer one question I have. I mean, I was on the website two or three times researching about open timestamps and I saw that you can do a timestamp mm-hmm. for free. Mm-hmm. But who's paying for it? I mean, um, you have to pay transaction fees, I guess, for putting it on the blockchain. Yeah, so there, I mean, there's a few different timestamping services. I think, I haven't checked recently because I think initially you did have to, well, no, Eternity Wall was the one where they ask, they ask you to pay the fee usually mm-hmm. um, to put in the blockchain. I think open timestamps, they just pay for it. So obvi- I mean, when I say use open timestamps, I don't mean you have to use their specific okay. instance. They run a service where they do it for you, but obviously you can fork the code and run your own. I just mean open timestamps in terms of the standard because open timestamps is um, what they're trying to do is actually build a standard for timestamping, but mm-hmm. you don't have to use their tool if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I think another uh, point or idea of you to make journalism more, uh, to make it more true or real or objective again, um, I think is uh, revisions. Yeah, revision-controlled journalism is the term I came up with. Um, as far as I know, I came up with it. I haven't seen any anyone else use that uh, combination of words. Um, and I, I basically started working on that as a model, I think in 2016, that was when I wrote the first, uh, the version one paper about just outlining my thoughts about what it was and what tools should be used. Um, and basically revision control journalism is just using tools, um, version control systems, which could be anything from, I mean, Git, which is the, what's used on GitHub. It's a version control system. Um, although in that case, um, it's designed for code revisions, not, not necessarily written revisions. Um, and, um, obviously another for, I mean, you could say that a a blockchain in a way is a kind of version control system because you're appending a log as you go on. And it's obviously not exactly the same as Git, but it's a very similar structure and order of operations. Um, so yeah, that's basically what revision control journal- journalism is, is using version control systems and also open source intelligence, which, um, and open source software, but open source intelligence is, um, a term, it, it's a military term, but I'm, I'm taking it back. Um, it's, it's a term for basically making your sources transparent and also, using data that is accessible. So either making the data that you're writing about accessible or the sources that inform your writing, um, but also using sources and doing research, using information that is available publicly. Um, So if you read one of my articles that I have on GitHub, I think I have three, I think I have three articles. Um, especially my largest one, which is an investigation into, um, an incident at the Tor project. Um, basically the entire page is just paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. Everything is blue hyperlinked stuff, you know, going to mostly archived sources so that if someone is reading my investigation, they don't have to trust that I quoted someone accurately or got a date right or anything like that. They can go directly to the source and verify it for themselves. Um, and so that, uh, the reason I do that is just because a lot of journalists don't, they write articles and they don't link to any sources. And so you're, you're basically forced to accept their opinion. It's mostly opinion. Um, 
because it's not very scientific and, um, or you have to go in search of the sources that they used, uh, which can be difficult. Yeah. And very often it's something, and it's a new word for me. I found it, I think on your website somewhere or uh, in this one paper, journalism written with CH, churn, journalism. Oh yeah. And yeah. I, I, I looked it up because I didn't know what this word means. And it's a game of pass the message. Like in German, we say stille post. Mm -hmm. So that's a children's game where one says something in your ear and you have to give it to the next one. And the last one guesses what was the first sentence. Yeah. And that a lot of journalism is like, I, I had this case today. I did a podcast interview and today I found an article on a crypto page, uh, in German about the main, um, like, uh, the main things that were coming up in my English podcast. And they just said, uh, this was, uh, said in a recent podcast, you know, but they didn't quote me. And I, I think that's not okay. I mean, yeah. and also what you say, like, uh, doing all this, um, research and uh, putting the quotes, uh, the, the sources in it. Uh, that's just the academic standard. I mean, that's what you yeah. do to prove that it's not just an opinion. Uh, it's interesting. I think maybe many journalists or people in this space also don't have the time to do proper research. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's a funding issue. Um, like for example, the, the largest article that I did using some aspects, not all of them of the model, um, it, mostly the open source intelligence and the revision control. Um, my largest article is, uh, I found out recently because I had never counted, but it's 43,000 words. Oh. And um, I've been updating it and working on it since 2016. I have not gotten paid at all the entire time I worked on it. So it's it's three years of work that I wasn't paid for. And I I did that I, because I, I didn't start it with the idea that I would get funded doing it. I wasn't expecting to. I did it because I was interested in the community dynamics that I was seeing play out. And I wanted to help myself and other people get some clarity on what was going on. And so I just, I, I started it for myself and then I realized it would be useful to other people, um, to just because there was so so much confusion around that especially initially and uh do you have any plans on putting up uh, such a platform by yourself yeah i mean so there i mean like i said i'm not a developer so at the moment especially with the the state of you know how easy it is to there's plenty of guides that are coming out now of how to um, for example, lightning and all of that, how to install them and set them up. So I don't think that would be much of a problem. I haven't done it yet just because I've been working on a lot of projects that I just haven't had the time. Um, the other difficulty also is just, I still have to, uh, figure out the tax situation with that because that can be very confusing if, you know, starting to accept lightning payments. That's a, it like, depends on which country you're in. And especially, I mean, I have an American accent. I, dealing with American taxes is an even bigger problem uh, than a lot of other places because you can't escape. <laughs> no, it's not only about escaping. It's really about accounting also, you know, because you, yeah. you don't know. Um, yeah. So actually um, kind of a mixture of both of these topics, um, tax, taxes and journalism, um, There is a interview that we recently did with Jeff Vandrew on Block Digest. Um, initially, I think we interviewed him back in February of this year, and that was when we were talking about Libra Patron, which is his um, Bitcoin-based alternative to Patreon, uh, minus the censorship and stuff. Um, and so we talked to him about that because he developed that. And then it also turns out that he's a he's a CPA and an attorney. Um, so we recently interviewed him about the IRS guidance. I would actually call it misguidance. <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, because everyone was, well, at least the American section of the Bitcoin community was losing their minds over how terrible it was and the lack of clarity, uh, there was. Um, so that would, might be interesting for people if, um, they also have that same confusion that I do. Yeah. And also the, how's it called? Libre, Libre Patreon. Uh, how is this project going? Um, 
So far, I haven't, because I haven't checked recently, I don't know, I haven't seen anyone running an instance. I haven't seen a journalist running an mm. instance, so I might actually end up being one of the first test cases for that. I haven't checked. Um, but I think he started, he released it sometime January, February of this year, um, and it works with BTC Pay Server. Um, I don't think they actually include it in their suite. They have a different application in their suite that kind of does the same thing, uh, with WordPress or similar functions. Um, but I mean, I, I'm, I would be really excited to use it because that's, I, I wouldn't want to sign up to Patreon just because of all of the, uh, some of the weird <laughs> issues that have come up. And, um, I just like the idea of, I like the idea of earning an income mostly from a currency that can't be subjected to censorship, um, especially for the type of journalism that I want to do. So I feel like it's more sustainable than something like Patreon. Mm -hmm. Before we continue, a short message from my longtime show supporters at Card Wallet. Thank you. We'll be back soon. Do you want to keep your Bitcoin safe long term? The Card Wallet is the best cold storage solution a retail customer can get. It's easy to use and completely offline. No hassles with updates, passwords or hacks. I gave one to friends as a wedding gift. They are Bitcoin newbies. But with the Card Wallet, even they can hold Bitcoin securely. And the best thing is, my friends at cardwallet.com made a special offer for all the listeners of my podcast. If you go to www.cardwallet.com forward slash Anita, you'll get 20% off the price. So go to www cardwallet.com forward slash Anita now and buy a card wallet with a 20% discount. What kind of journalism do you want to do? Which topics? Uh, well, the, the pieces that I'm working on right now are kind of, I'm, I'm just kind of covering what's happening with the extradition case uh, with Julian Assange in the UK. Um, well, he's being imprisoned in the UK, but the extradition case is from the US. And That's, that's just not some, for, I, it would be very hard for me to get any kind of position at any media organization that paid very well and write about that most of the time. They, that's just not something that they pay for. Um, and I, I also just think that there's always the risk with Patreon because they control the platform and I don't, even if maybe their decisions are generally favorable to me, they could make a decision that's not at any time. And I would then have to figure out how to shift my entire audience onto something that I can actually control and not be censored on. So it's kind of just a protective measure. I think the having the option and making the choice to self host. I think there could be one possibility. I haven't tried it yet, but um, I think you can use WordPress and uh, some other uh, plugins like MemberPress and uh, use your own payment uh, provider and then use BTC Pay Server. I mean, I've never done it, but it should be possible. <laughs> yeah, there's. Yeah. Um, it's called the Lightning Publishing App for WordPress, and that's in the BTC Pay Server app suite. Um, that's... So that would involve, you know, hosting your own BC, BTC pay server, obviously. Mm. Or, I mean, it's possible you could just get a bunch of people together and have an organization that hosts it. And um, you have the option to just reference, you know, the BTC pay server. So you don't necessarily have to run your own, That's but it's true. always the option. Um, but that, um, that plugin basically just works with WordPress and it gives you this, if you're reading someone's article that has this enabled, uh, it gives you preview the article and then it gives you the option to pay lightning and then you unlock the rest. And so it's a, it's a paywalled system, which it's debatable about whether that's the best option to use, um, for many different reasons. Um, yeah, but I think, I think someone could easily use both of those. They could, release their articles through a Libra patron instance, um, that are free. Um, and they could also release things directly through Libra patron, or they could use a 
WordPress thing like that. Mm -hmm. So you could use all of these at the same time. Have you seen use cases of this? Um, should I'm, you or should we be the first? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would, I would be willing to be the first, uh, if I could just get more guidance on, I haven't really ever run a business at scale. And I feel like that would be something that I would want to take more time to plan ahead of time. So if anyone is interested, contact me mm -hmm. about that. Um, I would totally be willing to be the, the guinea pig for that. Um, I think, uh, and I say, I'm going to say this in my talk, but I think that the early adopters of these kinds of things are going to be crypto news writers who are dissatisfied f with working for outlets like Coindesk and Decrypt and all of those um, who themselves suffer from the benevolent millionaire billionaire uh, problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's what they rely on. Um, so I think those are probably going to be the early adopters just because they're already in the ecosystem and they have a technical awareness of what's happening to some degree. <laughs> the technical knowledge is not great among journalists in general. Uh, but I think those would probably be the people that would gravitate towards it first. And then after that, um, it's going to probably take a lot of years to get other journalists to do it because there's just we have to deal with adoption issues in order just to even get onboarded and journalists are not used to self-hosting their own content so that's there's just a, a knowledge barrier there that needs to be fixed um, and that's that's not even for people you know living in countries where not very English speaking, don't have a lot of technical training and all of that. Um, this is just like relatively well off, uh, English speaking journalists in Western countries. And even that is, I think, going to be a struggle, but the ones who need it are going to figure it out, um, yeah. sooner or later. Yeah. And on the other hand, you need the readers that are willing to pay. Yeah. Yeah. So you, yeah. You need yeah. both sides yeah. of the market in yeah. order for that to work. Yeah. It's always the, hand and the egg problem that that's why that's another reason why i think it will be more likely that crypto crypto news journalists or bitcoin news journalists will be the first ones because they can cater to the audience that has already uh or they can write for an audience that already has adopted it mm. and so that will be easily sustainable um much earlier on mm. So I've heard the podcast you did with Marty Bent, I think, TFT, TFTC. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're talking a lot about uh, privacy there, online privacy. And I would want to ask you uh, which applications or uh, usage of platforms would you recommend or Which safety tips or guidance, in a way, can you give for the general public about their internet use or their smartphone use? I mean, I think the the first thing is for the the person, the general person, you should just be aware. You know, you can be a Facebook user, a Google user, whatever. Um, but if you use those services, I think you should develop an awareness of what what they know about you or what any service you use knows about you. Um, and you can find that out by just reading that privacy policy that you click through and never read. Uh, they tell you a lot of things about what they do and you might actually be shocked and <laughs> maybe you won't use them anymore. Um, and you should also check the privacy section settings of a service you use if they have them. Some of them don't because they don't have any or even better, they're privacy, but they're private by default and they don't need a special privacy section because, um, that's unnecessary if you already have a privacy oriented application. Um, but yeah, I just think you should become aware of what data you're sharing and you should be aware of whether like, what is the risk of the wrong people getting a hold of that data? Do you have any countermeasures in place? This is just really basic threat modeling stuff and you don't have to be necessarily targeted by anyone specifically it can just be you know what would happen if there was a, a data leak like if you if you're if you're among the people that are affected by a breach you should know how you're going to be affected by that because at that point it's it's open season anyone can access it relatively easily that really wants to um, so just be aware of that and also try to practice um, minimization as much as possible that means 
you know, if, if someone asks you for your name or your phone number, um, if you know you have the option to not give them certain pieces of sensitive information, information, don't, don't give it to them. If it's not necessary, don't do it. Like, uh, the easiest example is how, you know, you go to a Starbucks and someone asks for your name. Um, I don't think there's really any threat model around Starbucks employees that's super important, but it's just an example. Um, just use a fake name when you go to Starbucks. I don't even go to Starbucks because I don't drink coffee. I started But, that now because yeah. I don't understand why I should give them my name, not only the, the people behind the desk, but also, I mean, there could be anyone standing right behind of me who's maybe not the nice guy, you know, and mm -hmm. then knows my name. And I don't want to do that anymore. And I mean, it doesn't make a difference for the Starbucks people uh, if they know my real name or not. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, uh, so a more serious example that might come up, um, I mean, especially for women, if they're being stalked, um, there's cases that I've known, both men and women, where they will be, you know, staying at a particular apartment or hotel, and they will order uh, takeout food. And that should be a completely, I mean, that is, that's become a completely normal thing to do. Um, but if someone is stalking you or trying to figure out your location, uh, there's actually been cases where they're, they'll call around to local restaurants in an area and they'll say, you know, I am so-and-so the person that they're trying to find. Uh, I think I ordered something. Can you, can, I don't think I gave you the right address. Can you tell me what address I gave if I need to fix it? And then they'll give the address and that reveals where you are. Um, so that's, that's another reason, you know, don't give your name if you don't have to, to food delivery places or, uh, maybe pick up your food or yourself, something like that. But just think, think of the different ways where, um, you know, small things like that, where, you know, you don't have to provide sensitive information, um, try to avoid it if possible. Mm. Have you read, uh, surveillance capitalism? Uh, It's a I, book by oh yes Shoshana. Uh, I can't remember how to Shukov say her name. Yes, like that. I'm, I'm looking at yeah, it. yeah. I um I read parts of it. It's a very thick book. Exactly. Um, and I, I so another thing I'm I'm particularly uh, in favor of paper books. I very few of the books that I own are digital unless I can't find any copy in paper. Um. So I like going to bookstores, <laughs> like physical bookstores. And so I read that, I read that book, parts of it, um, in a bookstore. I didn't read the whole thing, but I, I understand the gist of. Yeah, yeah. I, same with me. I didn't read, it's like 600 pages and yeah. it's very dry. I do way. want to read it. I just yeah. haven't. Yeah. But, but the essence of it made me really think about my engagement on Facebook. And now I deleted my private profile because of that because i was so angry mm -hmm. about how they extort our data and how they get us with psych psychological tricks to use them any more more and more mm -hmm. and um so that's the that was the reason why i stopped using facebook <laughs> and it feels good actually i don't miss yeah. a thing i mean okay to be honest i still i'm still on instagram yeah and i have whatsapp on my smartphone because everybody has you know but, but i tried to minimize that too Some people also argue that you shouldn't use Twitter. Um, and yeah. I mean, I think there are definitely some cases where you, where, where Twitter is very problematic. Um, the reason that I chose to use it is because with all of its problems, it still, it still has certain allowances that Facebook doesn't, which is you can pretty much use any name you want. And, um, at least up until 2015 or 2016, you didn't have to give them a phone number or anything like that. I still don't have a phone number attached to my Twitter and um I literally can't um the times that I've briefly been had briefly had my account blocked or not suspended but um restricted um when they when I've requested that be unrestricted because I'm not a bot uh then they will request a phone number and I just tell them I don't I don't use a phone so I can't give that to you and I think even if I did have a phone I would still say that because I don't want to give them a phone number mm -hmm. and so hopefully I can keep doing that um, so yeah, there, there's ways like Twitter can still be very problematic, but I think there are, I, I try to use it in ways that m maximize the amount of good that I think that I'm doing 
that makes up for the costs of using it in terms of privacy and having this website be a center point of my identity and how I get news and uh, relationships with other people on the website. Mm. But don't post where you're going or yeah. where you're doing your holidays. Just, yeah. yeah, just informative things like work related stuff. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've very, I'm very conscious about what I decide to post. And for the most part, it's not stuff related to locations or anything like that. Um, I would say that if you do want to share that, um, and this is another problem, um, also that I don't know, I, I assume Twitter people have had the same problem, but it was specifically with Facebook that there were incidents where people, um, on Facebook, they would post that they were going to go on vacation and they were sharing all this vacation photos and everything. And if anyone malicious was seeing their profile, they would, if they could figure out where their house was, they would know that they wouldn't be home for this period of time. Um, and they could break in and know that they wouldn't be stopped um, unless they had an alarm or whatever. So that's also an issue that um, if, if your location, if your residence is relatively easy to figure out uh, in the U S it's, there's a big problem with all of these public directories that um, it's through your driver's license registration and all kinds of things that they share these um, they share this data with um with these websites and data broker companies and it just ends up getting published and it's super annoying because then you have to make the effort to get it removed yourself and that can be j just say gdpr and they won't even check if you're actually an eu citizen <laughs> they okay. will just nah. <laughs> they'll just freak out um so yeah you have to be even if you're a completely normal person and you think that you're not a quote criminal, there's still ways that, you know, oversharing on social media can be dangerous to you. Yeah. Um, last May, I've been to the States and um, upon entry, I had to fill out the registration form. I don't know the name now, uh, but Europeans have to fill it out. And there was also uh, like the names of my parents, uh, like, the names of my parents, what? Huh? And you mean they had the names of your they parents? They wanted, no, they, oh, wanted they wanted me to tell them the names of my parents. Oh. Wow, that's, and, that's awful. And then the next thing was uh, your social media profiles. Yeah, I've heard them. about that one. Yeah. yeah. And by that time, it was optional to give it. But I think by now, you, you have to give it. Uh, yeah, I haven't checked, but I heard that they were going to make it mandatory. Yeah, yeah. mandatory. And I thought, that time I thought, if I, like, if they Google me... <laughs> um, it's not realistic that I don't have a social media profile and they also will find it. So I just put my Facebook profile there, but nothing else. But in the end, I was like, what, what, why? I mean, they are simply collecting all the data and building their surveillance thing around. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know what they believe they gain from doing that because any person who would have anything relevant on a social media profile that would like make the border guards say, you know, you're a criminal or we shouldn't let you in or whatever. I mean, they're, they're an idiot and they have, they're either an idiot or yeah. the profile that you're looking at is fake. And the real one is somewhere else. Like if someone doesn't want to volunteer that information, they're, they, they will find ways to not volunteer it. And so all you're basically doing is profiling a bunch of mostly normal, not, not criminal, not interesting people. But what you are doing is you're, you're, they're obviously going to be creating some kind of database or profile of all these people that links social media profiles to identities. Facebook obviously wants to do that. Um, who knows if they have any cooperation going on there? I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a, it's another security theater measure that doesn't actually achieve anything. It just puts people at risk. Um, for another thing is the, uh, they've been introducing more facial recognition into airports. And I believe when I last checked, it is mandatory for non-U.S. citizens. I don't know about residents, but it's mandatory for non-U.S. citizens. And that got leaked a couple of months ago, I think. And so that means a bunch of people's faces and biometrics are 
potentially out there on the internet if they're not already so no in june when i came to new york the, it was mandatory i mean i <laughs> you know i thought to myself should i opt out but actually i didn't dare to you know because there was only one way and you had to go through the section where the cameras were and when where you had to do all these uh things stuff you know like Uh, doing a picture yeah. and you could not say to the guy I don't want to do that because I would have been the only one you know and then what then <laughs> yeah I mean yeah the, I think because I mean I have citizenship and I would even be terrified because the US border zone it, I like at at a certain level it doesn't actually matter whether you're a citizen or not it makes some difference it mostly makes a difference in terms of like where they're going to send you afterwards <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of how they treat you everyone is pretty much dealing with the same uh shitty behavior mm. shitty attitudes mm. of these border police mm. so even as even as a person who would have to deal with less trouble legally And supposedly I should have more protection. The, the, a lot of people don't know this, but it's called the hundred mile border zone. So if you're within a hundred miles of the U.S. border, your constitutional protections, at least as far as how the border police practice and acknowledge your, your constitutional rights is eh, like you kind of have them, but you, they, they have like, uh, they can override that for very special reasons for quote terrorism and all of this, uh, drug trafficking, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, even, even if you're in this border zone, which some States in the U S they're entirely within this hundred mile zone, uh, which is, yeah, it's, it's kind of insane, but yeah, the U S borders are scary and I, I hate what they're doing. And I, there there's not a single time where I've gone through a U.S. airport and haven't been absolutely terrified. Yeah, so. I completely understand that. It's terrifying, yeah. And it's not a nice welcome, actually. <laughs> yeah, and and also, especially with the U.S., like, the I, I was talking about this in a conversation the other day, but the U.S. border is not, it's not the U.S. border in terms of, like, where U.S. law enforcement has power. Like, they have all kinds of little enclaves in other airports around the world, you know, U.S. border control zone. Um, they have this in Canada. If you land in Canada, you're, you, you end up often going through a U.S., you know, customs and enforcement area, um, which makes no sense because you're on Canadian soil. Um, so why are they there? Um, I mean, I, they have justifications for why they're there, but... I also had an incident recently, which I was a bit public about, where I was detained at an airport not in the U.S. because a flight attendant thought that I was a human trafficking victim because I wasn't making eye contact <laughs> during a three-hour flight where I was mostly sleeping. And, and so... I was freaking out because I assumed when I was detained that it was on behalf of the U.S. government. I thought it was something to do with, but it turned out they thought it was a human trafficking. So they didn't tell you anything. They just no. detained yeah. you. Yeah, and the, yeah, wow. they just detained me. They didn't tell me anything. And then they basically, I ended up delaying my flight. They like held the flight for me, and they ended up delaying the flight while they were detaining me. And then yeah. They released me when they figured out no. Oh my god! <laughs> it was it was a very bizarre situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So traveling is actually no fun. <laughs> uh, well, it's. I mean, it really depends where you are. I mean, the the funny thing is because um, because the last name that I have is German. Um, there was a period before I had a German passport where I would go to Germany and they would see that my last name was German. And they would, it was like I had a German passport. <laughs> they, they, they just let me in. They're like, yeah. oh, okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Um, so there's some instances where their, their laxness surprises me. But yeah, going through airports in general is a very, it's become a very hellish process, but trains are very nice and walking is very nice. Yeah. Uh, there's other forms of transportation. Uh, that are possible and i assume you know people are going to be making more use of those in the future mm. so we were talking a little bit about books do you have any other book recommendations like from maybe the cypherpunk journalism side or for bitcoin for our listeners 
Yeah. So in, in terms of, um, cyberpunk related books, um, I have some, I have a collection of WikiLeaks books. Uh, we already mentioned the cypherpunks book. There's also the WikiLeaks files, which is, um, it's basically analysis of the U S diplomatic cables, which is quite interesting and it's a very thick book. Um, there's also the sovereign individual. I think a lot of, um, also libertarian leading Bitcoiners have read that one. In terms of not Bitcoin related books, there's one that I read recently called Trust Me, I'm Lying, uh, The Confessions of a Media Manipulator. And I bought that book because um, it's part of my research into journalism and what's wrong with it. And uh, funnily enough, the the author of the book is actually the publicist for one of the most prolific pickup artists. <laughs> I I discovered that after I finished the book, it's quite gross. Um, so that's the kind of crowd he was in, and I, like I would say that the the job that he was doing was basically the the media equivalent of a pickup artist, okay. <laughs> which is not a compliment. Um, but it was interesting because he he basically wrote about all the ways that he was able to just put bullshit on the internet and people would accept it and they would make very serious decisions based on that bad information and how he would notice other people doing the same thing and dissect it. And so it's an interesting book, even though it's written by a person that I don't know if he has fully confessed <laughs> enough. Um, but that was quite an interesting book from... Uh, the standpoint of looking at the problems of journalism. Um, another book that I particularly like, which isn't, it isn't really related to any kind of journalism or Bitcoin stuff. Um, but it's called the night country by Lauren Isley. And it's just, it's one of my favorite books cause it's very well-written. Um, he's, a, I think he's from, uh, where is he from? Nebraska. He's from Nebraska. Um, and he's just a very good writer, so I like that book. And that's just my recommendation. Thank you very much. I will put all of this into the show notes. And uh, last but not least, where can people find and follow your work? Uh, so, well, it depends. It depends on if you want to actually communicate with me or not. Um, in terms of just a good place to find my work, I put it on places like Twitter. Um, I also, I linked to my website there. It's just a very basic WordPress thing to, it's not any kind of serious attempt at a personal website. Um, I also have a, a key base that links all these things together so you can see that um, they belong to me. And I do a lot of my revision control journalism on GitHub so far. So if you want to read my articles, you can find that at GitHub and that's also linked through Keybase. Um, I use a different handle there. And so yeah, Twitter, um, that's where I'm mostly posting in terms of social media. And I'm also a co-host of Block Digest. So if you want to hear uh, two hours of shit talking every week, uh, that's where you can go. <laughs> Thank you, Shanine. Thanks for your time and uh, doing that interview. And I'm looking forward to see you talk at the Lightning Conference in Berlin. Cool. Thank, Thank you. Looking forward to it also. Bye. Bye. So thank you for listening. And please remember to check out the Bitbox 02 hardware wallets. Free shipping with the code ANITA at shiftcrypto.ch. Two editions, both Swiss made, including a Bitcoin only. What can I say? I'm a fan. And thanks also to Card Wallet and Salamantex. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. What did you think of the interview? Did it bring you greater understanding of Bitcoin and its people? If yes, and if you want to support my show, please subscribe to the podcast in your player, leave some stars and share, 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 share on social media. Feel free to contact me on Twitter, LinkedIn and YouTube or send me a voice message via the link on the episode page. Goodbye from Vienna. Auf Wiederhören. Music, start with yes, dedicate beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch.